0: You ever wonder why we are here? I don't mean here, why we're here. What's the purpose of life? I suspect that most of us live so much in the day to day, moment by moment type of existence that we don't really think too often about the big picture. I suspect, too, that people who have been Christians for a while and have sort of felt like they've settled that question, don't think about that too much either. But the reality is, it's an important question. I was talking with someone not too long ago who was wrestling with an issue in their life. They were struggling with, with uh, a circumstance that had uh, hurt them and they're trying to work through that. And they, they looked at me and said, so what is the meaning of life? And honestly, it took me back a little bit because I I don't think about that as often as I should. What is the meaning of life? Well, the reality is the scriptures tell us again and again and again the meaning of life. Why God created us is to have a relationship with him and to know the fullness of all of his life in us we see that from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, that God is continually trying to help people understand that He created us to be in relationship with Him and to know fullness of life with Him. And how all of that can change and affect and transform our lives. And God tells us in the Scriptures that He wants everyone to know that. That is the message that we get in the beginning. It's the message we get at the end. It's certainly a big part of the message that Paul is writing about in Ephesians. He's trying to help us understand that everyone is created to have this relationship with God and to know the fullness of life with God. It's a central part of the first chapter. He talks about it again in the second chapter. And he brings it up again as he comes to the third chapter. In verse 6, he says... That the mystery is through the, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles, people who at this up to this point had been told you're not really a part of this thing with God, that the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members of one body, sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. For Paul, the, the issue is Jews and Gentiles. That The, the Gentiles are, are told that they're sort of second class to God. They don't quite measure up. And Paul keeps trying to tell them and remind us that that's not the case. And there are no second class citizens in the kingdom of God. There are no people that God creates that he looks at as second class people. He loves everyone. His desire is for everyone to find the reason, the purpose why they were created. And for us, it's all kinds of other structures that we put into place. But people need to know, just as hopefully we know, this purpose and plan of God for our lives. If this is true, if this is God's plan, and if God wants the whole world to know that, how are they going to know? Paul tells us in verse 10 that God calls the church to be the channel through which people see and understand God's purpose for their existence. Paul says it's through the church. It's through the people of God. As important as an individual witness is, there is something about people who have come together and united their lives and are working through their differences and their struggles, who present a witness to the rest of the world that one person, by him or herself, simply cannot communicate when we lived in Wisconsin, there was a guy in the, in the church there who was a county agent for the Department of Agriculture. And a lot of his job involved trying to help farmers learn and, and understand how to use uh, new technology, seeds, different ways of fertilizing, different ways of planting. All these kinds of things that the Department of Agriculture had discovered and worked on. And he said that most of the time, the Department of Agriculture had discovered that farmers are pretty reluctant to automatically say, sure, we'll try this new thing. They're not unlike a lot of us, I guess. We don't like change too much. They said, you know, this has been working for years. Why would we change it? And the agent's job was to try to help them understand that it could help them. They'd get a better crop. Things would look better. They'd they'd get more out of it. And so they finally discovered, the department did years ago, that the best way to, to convince people of that was to create demonstration plots. You've probably seen them you know, driving along a major roadway and there's a, there's a plot of ground there with some signs about the type of seed they're using or something about it. And they let that grow. And when they get to harvest time, more, more often than not, that demonstration plot is better, has better yield than the other things that the farmers planted. And so when the next spring comes along, they're ready to, to say, okay, we'll do it. But they need to be shown. And there's something of the church in that. The church is sort of a demonstration plot to the world. Its very existence demonstrates that God's redemptive reign has already begun. Its presence invites the world to watch and to listen and examine and consider accepting God's reign as their means of life. And we stand before people and people watch us as a church. and, And God's plan is that people will say there's something about that group of people That they have that I don't. And I'd like to know about it. It was God's plan for Israel. It was God's plan from the beginning. He says to Abraham, I'm going to... All families on earth are going to be blessed through you. And as I bless you, they're going to be blessed. And he says to Israel through the prophet Isaiah, you will be a light to guide the nations. I'll make you a light to the Gentiles and you'll bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. But unfortunately, they, they interpreted being chosen by God as this is a means of us being exclusive. And we don't really want people to get in. And God's plan all along was to transform a group of people in such a way that everyone else said, we want what they have. And that's God's intention for the church. That we are so in tuned with God... Not perfect, but so in tune with God that people look at us and say there's something about them that they have that I don't, and I'd like to know that. But the emphasis of this passage is, is not just on the church being that witness. The emphasis is how we are this witness. And Paul clearly states by his own example that the church most effectively communicates the plan of God for people in this world through sacrifice. In verse 1, Paul says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. In verse 13, don't be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Verse 14, for this reason, I kneel before the Father and he prays for them. Recently, I got an email advertisement for from a, the Center for Personal Protection and Safety. And it's a group that hosts seminars for uh, businesses and churches to help protect their prisoners. And I think the ad said for $149, you'll receive straight talk and very practical advice on running a safe and secure church. Now, I understand what they're talking about. They're wanting us... To protect the people who come to this church from maybe outside violence or protecting our children, which we definitely want to do and we work hard to do that. But as I read that, something in a sort of a metaphorical sense struck me. And I received an email from someone else who got the same message and they thought the same thing. Is, that, is, is the church really supposed to be safe in that bigger sense? Is the church just, does the church just exist to to play it safe, to be comfortable? Is the church about trying to, to just sort of make us all feel good? Or is there something else going on? I think Paul is telling us something else is going on. Tim Gombas says that Paul's strategy is to situate his present circumstances squarely within the biblical tradition of God's power being demonstrated through human weakness his plan for Israel. I mean, he takes this nation that's enslaved. There's nothing great about them at all. And he raises them into this great nation. It's a plan of Jesus. Jesus becomes incarnate and takes on human flesh and all of our problems and struggles and difficulties. And eventually that takes him to the cross in what we would call failure. But God says that's the redemption of the world through failure. And the cross teaches us anything is that God often does his greatest work under the cloak of failure. Paul is in prison. And by the way the first century people think, when they think spiritually and religiously, In their minds, that would mean that the gods of Rome are stronger than whatever god it is that Paul worships. And I suspect it would be tempting for Paul to say, whoa, 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 wait a second. You're going to have to get me out of here, Lord, because this is not the message we want to send. I think that would be my way of viewing it. God, we don't want people to think you're weak. We don't want people to think that you don't have power. You, You need to do something. But instead, Paul is committed to God's historic plan and to the church being the means of revealing this plan, even through suffering, even through being imprisoned, even through sacrifice. You think about it. If Paul's witness is from a position of strength, who gets the credit? Who's everyone looking at? They're all looking at Paul. But Paul's sitting in a prison. Why would anyone think Paul has anything to offer them? It's clear he can talk to them about Jesus. It's about Christ who has changed his attitude and his perspective and his very existence. I think it's hard for us to, to really grab hold of that because you, know, you think about it, it doesn't really feel safe and makes us feel vulnerable and it's risky and, and it's not comfortable. And what if it fails? I mean that it really doesn't seem that wise. It's not the best strategy. Maybe that worked for first the first century. That's not how we do things here. Here you you stand up for your rights. Here you 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 advertise what great things you can do for God. In our world that's that's not, you know, you don't make an impression by being a servant, by being in prison. That's not how you get an audience, that's not how you get people interested. Asbury Seminary President Tim Tennant wrote in a recent blog, Evangelicals have become expert in finding a thousand new ways to ask the same question. What is the least one has to do to become a Christian? That's our defining question. He says, we've made entrance into the Christian faith painless and almost seamless. And in the process, we have managed to produce as many nominal Christians as Christendom has ever had. That we've been crisscrossing the world trying to get people to join our drama. But the gospel is about people being swept into God's great drama. It's about dying to self, taking up the cross, being swept up in the great theodrama of the universe. Now not everyone's called to the same sacrifices as Paul. But we all are called to something. Some kind of sacrifice. That's why on the, on the back of our bookmark, on the vision statement... The last bullet says we're empowered by God's spirit. We will take on Christ's suffering as our redemptive response to sin and evil. And that's not easy to do. But like all the statements on this vision statement, we struggle with God, with what God has called us to be. We like to serve when it doesn't cost us too much. We don't mind sacrificing as long as it's not too much. We like ease. We like getting what we want. Eugene Peterson says that a friend of his went to a, a retreat at a Benedictine monastery for a few days. And Benedict is famous for, for saying to his, uh, his monks back even in the 6th century that they were to receive each person as if it were Christ himself. And their gift of hospitality has grown and grown as, and is famous through the centuries. He said the first evening, the, after supper, they, the guest master gathered all the guests together and he said, If you find that there is something you need, come to one of the brothers and they will show you how to get along without it. Now we're so captured by the American Western way of thinking. It's hard for us to even grasp what Paul is saying here. That he is suffering for other people. And he's doing it willingly. I think it's one of the reasons, our struggle is one of the reasons why prayer is not as integral to our lives as I think God would want it to be. It's interesting to me that verse 14, the way Paul describes his praying for them... He could have just said, "For this reason, I pray to the Father." but he says, "For this reason, I kneel before the Father." And kneeling is, is an act of reverence. You know It's an act of saying, "God, I'm not in control here. you are. It's an act of humility. I think it's one of the, re- it's one of the reasons why we have opened, started opening the altar and continue to do that for praying. It's just one way of connecting our body to our minds and our hearts. And we come and the physicality of kneeling is hopefully a a response of kneeling in our hearts. Of coming before God in humility and reverence. And recognizing that he's in control, not us. And that we cannot live our lives without him. Peterson says this idea of bowing our knees in prayer is an act of vulnerability. When you're on your knees, you can't run away. You can't assert yourself. You're in a position of submission. And you're vulnerable to the one before whom you're bowing. That's the idea of intercession. That we pray because we care about people. We stand in the place for other people. Intercession is not about trying to convince God that to get, do something that he would rather not do. It's, it's about caring so much for people that we invest our time and our energy and our effort in praying for them. Sometimes when they find it hard to pray for themselves. And we pray even when it doesn't benefit us. Because we care about people. What's interesting is that that kind of prayer brings change. We're changed because intercession like that is an act of selflessness. And every act of selflessness is an an openness to God. And other people are changed because as they begin to understand that we're willing to give our time and our energy to pray for them, it does something to you. It changes the way you look at things. You feel loved and cared for. All of this because Paul says, I'm a servant. I'm in prison. I bow before the Father. It's for other people. What amazes me is that Paul is not in any way doing this begrudgingly. He says in, in verse 7, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me. You might, you sort of might think, well, Paul's in prison because. You know, circumstances arose and really wasn't much else he could do. The truth is, he says, I'm in prison because God gave me grace. He let me be in prison for your sake. I haven't always seen it that way. You Think back to Acts 26 and Paul standing before King Agrippa. And everybody there knows Paul is innocent. But he's still in prison. And the king says, you know, we could, he could be a free man. We could release him if he hadn't have appealed to Caesar. And I often read that as, man, Paul really blew that one, didn't he? You know, he must have panicked when that was coming up. And, and you know, and he, he said, I want to appeal to Caesar. And God went, oh, man, I was just going to get you out. But Paul comes to the end of his life and he says, no, no, no. He said, I don't want you to feel bad for me. I am exactly where God wants me to be. I have given my life in service I'm in prison and it's okay because it's for you. And you're gaining benefit from it. And that's enough for me. Here's what I've discovered. We will only be a church that is willingly committed to sacrificing ourselves for others when we are convinced that God is enough for us. Only when we believe that God is enough for us can we then sacrifice? If we don't believe God is enough, we spend our lives grabbing, holding, getting everything we can and keeping it. When we come to believe that God is enough, our hands start opening, we start letting go, and we start being willing to give for other people. The last section of chapter 3 is one of the most beautiful, powerful things that Paul, Paul writes he describes Christ's love and says, I pray that, that you will grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. He, he doesn't know how to describe the limitless nature of Christ's love. But he says, I want you to grasp it. I want it to get into your minds. But really, he says, but even more than that, more than grasping it, I want you to know this love that surpasses knowledge. And the word know is that is an that element of experience. We all have had experiences where we have learned about something and then we engage with something totally different. It is a, he's saying it's wonderful to know about Christ's love. What I really want you to do is to experience Christ's love. That it would embrace you and, and overflow in you and fill you and change you. My first, uh, the first 18 years of my life, the only knowledge I had of mountains were what I read in books, what I saw in somebody's pictures. I grew up in Indiana. We don't have many mountains in Indiana. I don't know. Maybe the highest point is 1,000 feet. I'm not sure exactly, but it's not real high. And that, that was all I knew of mountains. And then my family moved to Oregon. And I still remember the day we were driving along Interstate 84 along the Columbia River Gorge. It is one of the most beautiful scenes in an interstate you will ever encounter. And we're driving along the, the Columbia River and we come around a bend and right there is Mount Hood. And I can still feel the sensation I had when I saw that. My heart skipped a beat. My, it took my breath away. The hair on the back of my neck stood up. And it was just so awesome. That mountain right there in front of me. I knew about mountains. But that day I saw a mountain. And it was not the same thing. And God's desire for us is to not just know in our minds... The limitless love of Christ, but to be embraced in that love and to let it fill every part of our being and to experience it in the deepest depths of our being. And when we begin to to experience that love, we can give it away because we know there's always more. There's always more, it's limitless. Eugene Peterson tells about some friends of his who about 25 years ago adopted a little girl from Haiti. Her parents had been killed in a tragic automobile accident, and they got her when she was five years old. That first night, they they were back home in Arizona. They were sitting around the dinner table together, and there was a platter of pork chops and a big bowl of mashed potatoes. And uh, everything went around the table, and people took food, and And they had two sons that were in teenagers. And Graham and Thatcher took their first helping and ate it and then quickly took another helping and ate that. And before long, all the food was gone. And Fred and Cheryl noticed that something seemed to change in little Addie. And they suspected what it was and they were right. She was having trouble with all the food being gone. She'd grown up in poverty. She'd never seen that much food before and never seen it disappear so fast either. So her mother took her into the kitchen and opened up a bin and showed her three loaves of bread that hadn't even been opened yet. And she opened up the refrigerator and showed her a carton of eggs and bottles of juice and milk and jams and jellies and opened up the bottom and showed her the vegetables down there. And then they went to the pantry and she showed her Onions and, and carrots and opened up the pantry doors and all these canned goods that were on the shelves. And they went into the freezer and she opened up the freezer and showed her three or four chickens and a couple of pieces of fish and a couple cartons of ice cream. And all the while she was saying to her, there's plenty of food. There's plenty of food. It doesn't matter how much Graham and Thatcher eat or how fast they eat it. There's more food. There's more And it took a while, but eventually Addie began to trust them. And she began to realize that her brothers were not rivals for food when they sat down at the table. Because there was plenty of food. Even if she couldn't see it all the time, there was abundance. And somehow I think God wants us to live that way about his love. So often we feel like if we can't see it, if we can't feel it, if other people get it, if we give it away, I'm not going to have anything left. And Paul says, I want you to know, I want you to grasp and experience how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. It is endless. It is limitless. And the more you give away, the more you'll get. So don't be afraid to live as servants. Don't be afraid to be a community of people who give. God has enough. His love is abundant. Do you think we can be that kind of congregation? Do you think we could, we could have a reputation for being a church who loves to give, loves to sacrifice, Loves to express love in very tangible ways with other people. you think we could ever become that kind of church? I'd like to think so. Because I believe, as Paul says in the last verses of this section, that people, congregations who do that, begin to understand the immeasurable work of God that is beyond anything we could have ever dreamed for what he does in us and for what he does through us. Do we believe that God can make us this kind of people? Do we believe it enough to begin asking him to make it come true? Father, we thank you for your love for us Let us experience it in deeper ways together. Begin to make us a congregation who loves to give and to serve and to sacrifice and sees all of it as your grace. And we pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen.